looking at Proverbs chapter 18, verse 22. Proverbs 18, 22. 18, 22. As you're turning there, let's take a moment to pray. Father, we're, we're grateful for the wisdom and guidance of your word. We pray that you would impart wisdom to us this morning, that we might be conformed to the image of your Son, that we might rest in his grace, that we might live according to what he calls, that we might glorify you in our midst, in our homes, in our lives. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, once when Winston Churchill was present at a formal banquet in London, all of the attending dignitaries were asked this question. If you could not be who you are, who would you most like to be? If you could not be who you are, who would you like to be? It's an interesting question. But as Churchill considered and and waited that night and that while seated next to his beloved Clemmy, the answer became obvious. When the elderly Churchill rose to give his answer as the very last respondent, he said, if I could not be who I am, I would most like to be, there he paused to take his wife's hand, Lady Churchill's second husband. Undoubtedly, Churchill well knew the pleasure of having a good wife. Well, this morning we're we're turning our attention to the subject of marriage in the book of Proverbs, and it, it might seem obvious that there's much wisdom needed for our world today and for Christians today regarding marriage. When you think of uh, maybe the kind of wisdom needed for a good marriage in our day and age, you might think of any plethora of relevant issues facing married people today. You might think of of the desperate need for wisdom concerning things like communication in marriage, concerning sex in marriage, concerning relational dynamics, roles, definition, and and much more. And all of those things are things we've we've addressed from the pulpit before. I'm sure we will again. Many of those are addressed here in the book of Proverbs in some form or another. However, one, one very clear focus concerning wisdom about marriage in Proverbs is this, is that marriage is a wonderful blessing. Marriage is a wonderful blessing. It's worth celebrating and pursuing and enjoying. Marriage is a wonderful blessing. And this is a particularly relevant piece of wisdom to to highlight in our day and age because we live in a time where marriage is continually being devalued in our culture and even increasingly among Christians. The research and work of a sociologist, Mark Regneris, found that within the church at large, not just within the wider culture, but within the church at large among Christians, that the, the attitude toward marriage is increasingly be some, becoming, you know, it's something that, that might be worth doing if it works out sometime in the future, if it happens to fall into my lap. We might aspire to get married one day, but in the meantime, we're busy having a good time or building our careers, or going to school, or uh, going to cool vacations, or curating our preferred lifestyles, or whatever else. In his book, he summarizes his findings saying this, that our most intimate relationships are being treated as a means, often discarded, to attain those ends and acquisitions that have been most effectively marketed to us. In light of this prevailing 
view so common today. He, he says that often among Christians, young adults are offered no guidance about maturation, mortgages, or marriage, save for words of caution, counsel to delay, and cost-benefit calculations. In other words, he's saying this, marriage in much of today's Christianity is increasingly being viewed as less valuable than the goods and lifestyles being marketed to us in our culture and on social media. And so the guidance and advice and so-called wisdom we receive from other Christians regarding marriage is, is sometimes often little more than advice to wait, to postpone, to be suspicious about jumping into such a weighty commitment. And so it's worth asking this morning, What does the wisdom of God in the book of Proverbs say to us about this? If you'd like to stand with me for the reading of God's holy and precious word, let's listen with reverence and joy to Proverbs chapter 18, verse 22, the word of our beloved God. He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can be seated. Well, as we're in the book of Proverbs, we understand that while the first nine chapters we walked through, first nine chapters of Proverbs, and also the last chapter of Proverbs, do indeed contain something of a logical sequence Chapters 10 through 30 are more so filled with various Proverbs that often seem to have no discernible order to their arrangement, right? So throughout the body of this book, you very well might go from a proverb about words to one about finances to one about work to one about table manners to one about disappointment to one about self-control to one about cheerfulness to one about raising children and on and on we could go. And, And aside from all of them showing us what a wise life of fearing the Lord looks like, Individual proverbs, sometimes even right next to each other, often seem otherwise unrelated. And so we're at a point in our series through the book of Proverbs here where we're, we're, we're taking a look at what Proverbs has to say about various particular subjects. And we're, we're landing, we're, we've been landing in individual proverbs throughout the book that relate to our given subject. Last week we began with looking at uh, what Proverbs has to say about our words. And this morning, we're looking at what Proverbs has to say about marriage, and we're, we're rooting ourselves in kind of a home-based text, one particular proverb, and we're looking at what it tells us about marriage, even while we might venture out to briefly visit other Proverbs related to our subject as well. And our proverb this morning is 1822, and like last week, we've come to what's called, uh, we've come to another parallelism, right? So we we, we saw a, a parallelism here last week. If you weren't here last week, a parallelism is, is a one-sentence, two-line piece of poetry. It's a one-sentence, two-line literary device wherein the two lines are in some way related to one another. And there are three main kinds of parallelisms used in the book of Proverbs. There are synonymous parallelisms where the two lines state the same idea with just different words. Uh, There are antithetical parallelisms, like we saw last week, where the two lines are contrasting or antithetical ways of living and being human in the world. But but this morning, we come to what scholars call a synthetic or a growing parallelism. And a synthetic parallelism is a parallelism wherein the second line will add to or complete the first line, right? It's where the second line adds to our understanding beyond what the first line itself states. 
and our synthetic, paraline here, par, uh, synthetic parallelism here in, in um, 1822 uh, begins with the first line, of course, where we see that marriage is a grand good. Marriage is a grand good. And then we'll, after that, we're going to take a step back and, and follow it up with a second point where we look at the second line and see the slightly bigger picture there where we see that marriage is a gracious gift. And then we're going to step back even further in the last point and look at the even bigger picture and see that marriage has a glorious goal. First, we see here, though, that marriage is a grand good. The first line of our proverb states that he who finds a wife finds a good thing. Now, I would again remind you that these are Solomon's words that uh, he's, he's speaking to and counseling his sons with as he's raising them. He's raising them to live lives of wisdom and skill. And so with that, it, it, it shouldn't surprise us that he tells his sons, he who finds a wife finds a good thing. You ladies can obviously and easily see how the reverse would also be true, that she who finds a husband also finds a good thing. Uh, the message of the passage for both men and women, is that getting married and obtaining a spouse is a precious blessing. If, if you're married, if you've acquired a spouse, you are a blessed person. You've got yourself a precious treasure. You found, Solomon says, a good thing. We see this clearly in Genesis 1 and 2, in the beginning of the Bible, in the beginning where God creates everything. In Genesis 2, the Lord creates Adam, and he places Adam on this earth, and in Eden, and he's, he's placed Adam on this earth to image forth the God who created him, and to work the earth, and to cultivate the earth, and to take care of the earth. But even before the fall in Genesis 3, even before sin entered the world, there's a glaring problem with this whole picture. And the Lord states it in Genesis 2.18, where he says, it is not good that man should be alone, I will make a helper fit for him. And so the Lord forms and creates Eve to be Adam's wife, his companion, his complementary and compatible counterpart. And together, Adam and Eve show forth something of the divine image that was missing before God gave Adam Eve. And it was very good. He who finds a wife finds a good thing. Whenever I do premarital counseling, one of the exercises I, I, I like to do is simply take newly engaged couples through a short tour of, of the biblical purposes and benefits of marriage. And there are several of them, we won't consider them all, but, but they're, they're so sweet and so dear. It's a wonderful exercise. And in and, and Genesis 2, as we just read, you see that in marriage, you're given mutual companionship and help, right? As, as you build a life with your spouse, if you're married, you get the joy of being able to build a life with, with someone else, your, your, your best friend. And in, and in marriage, your spouse's presence, their gifts, their abilities and talents and perspectives will often offer mutual help and enhancement. They can help soften your sharp edges and make up for your weaknesses. And as a result, the life you build with one another is often better than the life that you might build apart from one another. And this is true in so many areas. This is true in your life's work and in your assets, in your ministry. Your ministry to others as a couple for the sake of the gospel will often be more fruitful and effective. This mutual help and companionship is a huge blessing. In addition to that, in Genesis 24, 67, you see that marriage can give you comfort in times of distress and hardship. In Genesis 24 there, Isaac was 
was mourning the death of his beloved mother. And it's at that time that, that Rebecca becomes his wife. And it says that through Rebecca becoming his wife, Isaac was comforted. And Tim Keller once said that friendship doubles your joys and halves your sorrows. And nowhere is that more true than in the friendship and one flesh union of of marriage, it increases comfort and peace, even in the midst of hardship and distress. It's even in hard times, you have someone there to lean on and draw strength from and be comforted by. Proverbs 5 and 1 Corinthians 6, you see that marriage offers a a God-consecrated and safe place for sexual enjoyment and expression of sexual passion. We've talked a lot about that over the last several months. Related to that, in Genesis 1, 26 and 28, you see that marriage is ordinarily the God-ordained context in which children are joyfully brought into this world. You see, according to the Bible, marriage offers companionship, mutual help, comfort, joy, a loving context for children, and and so much more. And even according to, to much of the common grace wisdom today, if you look at Much of the research done today about married people, you'll find that those who get and and stay married often enjoy a higher quality of life, experience more happiness, have more stability in life. You see, marriage is a good thing. He who finds a wife, she who finds a husband, finds a good thing. Marriage is worth celebrating and pursuing and enjoying. Of course, we should point out, on the other hand, that not every Christian is married and not every Christian is even called to get married. We know that. You know that in 1 Corinthians, we see that in 1 Corinthians 7, where the Apostle Paul commends singleness as a worthy state of life, one he himself lived in. And he commends it as a a worthy state of life so that those who are single can devote more of their time and energy and attention to serving the church and evangelizing those outside and giving themselves more fully to certain kinds of sacrificial ministry. So indeed, we have single people in this church. If you're single... You very well might be called to this, this, this vocation of singleness for the sake of whatever kind of ministry the Lord might be calling you to, and that's honorable and right and good. And we can just as much say the same about those who get married. Marriage is an honorable state of life. It is a good vocation worthy of pursuit and enjoyment and gratitude. And even more than that, we, we might also point out that marriage is simply more common than singleness in the world. And some of you are single, you you might be called to stay single, but it's just a fact that most people do end up getting married. And even while that number is getting smaller today, and therefore even while singleness is commended in Scripture, so is marriage, and we ought to therefore commend it as God's people for the purposes and benefits that it gives to us as individuals and as a community and even to society at large. It's worth remembering and extolling this reality that he who finds a wife finds a good thing. On the other hand, I might also point out that not everyone who is married actually experiences marriage in the way we're talking about here. You know, it's interesting, uh, some of the oldest translations of this verse, like the Septuagint and the Latin translation of the Bible, they actually insert the word good before the word wife, saying that he who finds a good wife finds a good thing. It doesn't actually say that in the Hebrew, but evidently, those translators thought it was assumed in this text. Because in all reality, you, you can marry someone who in some ways actually 
increase the sorrow. Who, you know, you can marry someone who seems to have your joys and double your sorrows in some respect. And the book of Proverbs is it's extremely realistic about this, right? Proverbs is not a pie-in-the-sky kind of book. It gives wisdom for the real stuff of life. It, it addresses, in marriage, sexual fidelity and infidelity. It addresses how to deal with difficult people. And, you know, your spouse might be a difficult person. You might be a difficult person. It speaks to the fact that people sometimes end up with spouses that can make life miserable at times. Proverbs 11.29 says that whoever troubles his own household will inherit the wind. Right? There are people in this world who, because of their own foolishness and wickedness, bring trouble upon their homes and families to the point where the well-being and provision of their families is in jeopardy. And that proverb is encouraging us to avoid marrying some fool who is going to wreck their lives or our own, and it's warning us from becoming that kind of fool ourselves. Proverbs 12.4 says that an excellent wife is the crown of her husband, but she who brings shame is like rottenness to his bone. Right here, Solomon warns his sons to not marry foolish and wicked wives who bring embarrassment and shame to the family name. Proverbs 19.4 says a foolish son is a ruin to his father, and a wife's quarreling is a continual dripping of rain. 21.9 says it's better to live in the corner of a housetop than in a house shared with a quarrelsome wife. 17.1 says better is a dry morsel with quiet than a house full of feasting with strife. That's actually the memory verse above our dinner table right now. In other words, a quarrelsome spouse is extremely annoying. And this goes... This goes as far to say that it'd be better to live lean and hungry with peace and quiet than in a house with a full table that's also full of fighting. Proverbs like these, they come from real-life observation in the real world. So there's a few pieces of application we might consider in light of what we've looked at here. First is this, if you're single and searching, choose wisely. Choose wisely. Take, and please take this seriously. You know, I remember, I remember preaching years ago when we really, I think we just first started as a church. I remember preaching through Ephesians 5, 22 through 33. And one of my applications was to not marry an idiot. Don't marry an idiot. And that was early on in my preaching days. Maybe a little less sensitive and pastoral then, <laughs> hopefully. But, you know, years later, I, I remember beginning premarital counseling with a, a couple, and the bride told me for years she was looking to get married, and all that time she was remembering, whenever she'd consider a potential mate, that she should not marry an idiot. So she gave a few guys the, you know, the old stiff arm over the years, and now she's married to a good man, a man who's not an idiot. And it's a beautiful thing. And so if I could say the same thing here with just a bit more tact, if you're single and searching, choose wisely. And I want to be, I want to be careful here because I've, I've seen single Christians in the past who are, who are very, very ridiculously meticulous about any potential spouse. I've seen ladies who are searching for a really godly Brad Pitt who's a two on the Enneagram and loves kittens and all of this. And I've seen... You know, guys who are looking for a neat Christian girl who looks like Rihanna but has the work ethic of Leslie Nope, and, you know, it, it, it can just get really, really ridiculous. And, and so, 
please li- listen, if that at all describes you, please listen to me. Here's how you choose a, wi- a, a spouse wisely. Find a person who follows Jesus, who is pursuing godliness, who can be a faithful partner with you in the ministry of reconciliation, and I promise you, it will go well for you. That's what you should be looking for. In some, you should be looking for someone who fears the Lord and is being increasingly conformed to his image. Will Ferrell once said that you should, um, before you marry a person, you should watch them use a computer or slow internet for a while to see who they really are, right? (laughs) That's funny, but, you know, I, I remember my mom telling me growing up, I remember my mother telling me when I was a young man, just watch the way any potential spouse. Watch the way they treat their parents. Because, my mom said, they're probably going to treat you that way one day. If you see someone who, who, who's prone to take advantage of others, who quarrels with others, who's deceptive, who doesn't, who doesn't fear God, and who therefore belittles others, you can be pretty sure that they're going to treat you that way one day. And so choose wisely. Just choose based on looks and attraction. I understand being attracted to someone, it's it's an important part of romantic interest and marriage and everything, but as Proverbs 31.30 says, charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Proverbs 11.22 says, like a gold ring and a pig's snout is a beautiful woman without discretion right? Wisdom, godliness, it's far more important than looks and beauty. Choose a spouse that loves Christ and who has aimed their life toward godliness, and you will choose well. Then in addition to that, if you're single and searching, seek this even more. Seek to be the kind of person that a God-fearing, Jesus-loving spouse would want to marry. The kind of person you're going to attract is likely the kind of person you are. If you're searching for a potential spouse who treasures Christ, who's growing in godliness, then you need to be a Christ-treasuring, growing Christian yourself, or else when you come across someone who loves Christ and is headed toward godliness, they probably won't want to marry you. And so prepare yourself. Pursue Christ with all your heart. Seek to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. Fight to be like him in the might of his power and find someone who's seeking to do the same. And then also, for those who are already married and are in marriages like some of the Proverbs we read just described. Marriages that are hard and filled with quarrels and fighting and folly. There's really no easy counsel for this, especially not so generally from the pulpit. Few difficulties rival the difficulty of an unhealthy marriage. Few sorrows rival that kind of sorrow. But friends, if that's you, take courage, take hope, because listen, people can change. You can change. Marriages can change. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not an empty word. It's a powerful word that takes sinful people who are far more broken than they want to be, and it heals them and transforms them and changes them. And and so if you're in a marriage that's difficult... Be patient, pray, pray for them, pray 
for them to change and grow and be transformed by the gospel. Pray for yourself that you, will, you would handle fights and arguments and disagreements with wisdom and dignity and godliness. Give yourself to, to reading and applying the book of Proverbs here. There's much wisdom here. There's a treasure trove of wisdom here for fools like us. There's a trevor, treasure trove of wisdom here for how to relate to difficult people, even if that difficult person is your spouse. Reach out to, to fellow church members or leaders for help and counsel and, and guidance. You're not alone. You've not been left by God to figure your life out on your own. You have a heavenly father who's given you his word and his spirit and his church to help you and guide you and counsel you. He's looking out for you. Lean on him, on the provision that he's given you in his word and spirit and people. And lastly, for those who are happily married, here's wisdom for you. Rejoice. Seriously, rejoice. No marriage is without problems or difficulties. But if you've been given the, the good gift of a good spouse, enjoy it. Be happy and grateful and delighted. Rejoice. Proverbs 5.18 commands us to do this very thing. It says, rejoice in the wife of your youth. You've been given a good gift. Good gifts are meant to be enjoyed. So enjoy it, soak it in, relish it. To, other, to do otherwise, when you've been given such an enormous blessing, would be sacrilege. And not only that, but, but let your joy find completion in expressing it in praise, particularly praise for your spouse. Praise your spouse. You might find that to be a little odd. Shouldn't we only praise the Lord? According to Proverbs, no. If you found this good thing, then rejoice and let your rejoicing be verbally expressed in praise toward your spouse. The, the, the famous Proverbs 31 passage portrays the, the, the much revered Proverbs 31 woman, but it's worth reading that chapter at some time and, and, and noticing the characteristics of a Proverbs 31 man in it as well. Listen to the kind of spouse he is. Verse 28 says that the children of the Proverbs 31 woman rise up and call her blessed. And you might wonder, well, where are they getting that from? Where are they learning to bless their mother from? You don't need to wonder too long. It goes on to say, her husband also, and he praises her. He praises her. What does he say? Verse 29, many women have done excellently, but you surpass them all. In other words, he says, I, I couldn't have found a better wife than you. I, I couldn't be more pleased than I am with you. You are a treasure. You're the only one for me. You are the apple of my eye. I treasure you, he says. Husbands, do we talk like that to our wives? Wives, do you similarly encourage your husbands? If you've been given the good gift of a good marriage, it is right and fitting and appropriate for you to do so. To make your home one where you continually commend and celebrate and rejoice in and praise one another. Right? Paul tells the church in Rome, in, in Romans 12.10, outdo one another in showing honor. We should do this in our households and in our marriages as well because he who finds a wife finds a good thing. Marriage is a grand good. But secondly, see here that marriage is also a gracious gift. 
Remember that this is a synthetic parallelism. The first line says something true about the subject at hand, but then the second line adds to our understanding beyond what the first line itself states. It offers a more ultimate or more complete perspective on the matter. And what this points out to us here is that marriage is not only a good worth pursuing and finding in life, it's not only something worth rejoicing in and praising your spouse for, but it's, it shows that ultimately speaking, marriage is a gracious gift from God. And not just generally speaking, right? As Christians, we do believe that marriage is God's idea. It's his creation, it's his ordinance. He created it and set it up in the beginning for humanity to bless and multiply us and increase our joy. That's true. But in this verse, we see that marriage is not just a gracious gift in general for humanity in general, but specifically in God's particular providence and meticulous sovereignty, marriage is a gift for those to whom it is given. He who finds a wife finds a good thing. We're not talking about it. We're, we're, we're talking about an individual here. And what's more, he's not just gotten a good thing. He's obtained favor from the Lord. In getting a spouse, this individual here has received favor from God. He's received grace from God. He's been blessed by God. A good marriage and a good spouse is a good gift from a good God. And as some scholars have pointed out here, part of what this verse is showing us is that marriage is simultaneously, though not equally, the result of both human action and divine sovereignty, right? It's, it's something simultaneously both searched for and found by man and also something graciously given by God. The, the, the primary cause is divine sovereignty. That's the first and primary cause of all things. But then there's the secondary and tertiary causes of, of human action. There's human responsibility at work here in finding a spouse. And, and, and ultimately, divine sovereignty and, and favor given to the one who finds a spouse. Right? So look at the language here. One who finds a spouse, as Solomon puts it here, was in all likelihood searching for one in the first place. There's, not, there's no passivity here. Okay, but, but the second line adds to our understanding to show that ultimately speaking, a spouse in marriage is a gift from God. It's given as a favorable gift from God. And this is worth pointing out here because of our potential proclivity to be in error on either side of this proverb. Now, on the one hand, some Christians might be somewhat prone to be more passive in life in the name of divine sovereignty. We might be fatalistic or deterministic, and that inevitably results in a life without much motivation or proactiveness or fruitfulness, which is not good and not wise. But on the other hand, some of us might be more prone to living life as if, you know, our destiny is completely and entirely in our own hands, and that will inevitably either lead to a life that's full of pride and arrogance or anxiety and despair. It'll lead to pride and arrogance if things go well, or anxiety and despair if things go poorly. And yet the Bible, like Proverbs 8, 20, 18, 22 does with marriage here, will continually show us again and again the importance of human action and divine sovereignty that they're both essential to understand if we're to live lives of wisdom. 
People often treat the two as if they're incompatible, but here we see that, that the two live harmoniously together in the pursuit and gift of marriage. J.I. Packer speaks to this issue in his, his wonderful book, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. And it, he, he cites a, a story from Charles Spurgeon where he says that Spurgeon was once asked if he could reconcile these two truths to each other, the, the two truths that... Um, Humans possess responsibility for action and that God is sovereign over everything in life. And, and in response, Spurgeon said, I wouldn't try. I never reconcile friends. I wouldn't try to reconcile the truths of human responsibility and divine sovereignty in the Bible because I never reconcile friends. They are friends. Packer goes on to write that this is the point that we have to grasp. In the Bible, divine sovereignty and human responsibility are not enemies. They are not uneasy neighbors. They are not in an endless state of cold war with each other. They are friends, and they work together. And so it is with those who find the good thing of a good spouse. In all likelihood, if, if you've found a good marriage and a good spouse, it's probably because you were looking and active, you were preparing, you were putting yourself out there, but ultimately speaking, your marriage and your spouse is a favorable gift from a good and gracious God who was using your pursuit as an instrument of his divine will to bless you. I think the story of Isaac and Rebecca that we cited earlier beautifully illustrates this. I think about that story in Genesis 24 here. Previously, Abraham and his family had been sent out of the land of Ur of the Chaldeans. But when the time came for his son to marry, Abraham wanted his son to marry a daughter of his people, not one of the Canaanites, and there were certain redemptive historical reasons for that. And so Abraham, in his old age, calls his chief servant, and he tells him, I want you to go to my country, to my kindred, and take a wife for my son Isaac. And he sends his servant on a long journey to his homeland to find a wife for his son. Still sends his own proxy, right? Office reference. But think about this. This is a lot of human effort put forth. Just, just imagine, if you're looking for a spouse, you've got to go to a completely different country to find one. That's a lot of effort. So... Abraham's servant packs up the camels, he packs up a bunch of gifts, and he goes, and he goes to Mesopotamia, to the city of Nahor, and as he's approaching a well there in the city to drink and water his camels, he prays, and he asks the Lord to grant him success in finding a spouse for Isaac, and he asks the Lord to give him a, a very particular sign. He asks that the, that the right woman would be one who helps him get water from the well, as well as water for his camels. And that would be a sign of her generosity and servant-hearted spirit, as well as a sign to Abraham's servant that this is the specific one. And even before he finishes praying, a beautiful young single lady named Rebecca comes out. And when she came to the well, Abraham's servant asked for a bit of water from her jar, and she gave it to him. And then, unprompted, she offered to get water for his camels as well. And at this, the servant just stood before her amazed. It says that he just gazed at her in silence to learn whether the Lord had prospered his journey or not. And when he found out who she was and whose family she belonged to and that she was the perfect candidate for marrying Isaac, listen to what he did. It says he, the man bowed his head and worshiped the Lord and said, blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness toward my master. You see, 
There's a lot of human action that went into finding this beloved bride, but ultimately this was God's doing. This was a gracious gift from God. Isaac here had obtained favor from the Lord. Part of what Proverbs 18.22 is showing us here, that wisdom will recognize a good spouse as such. And so, you know, for those of us who are married, we should give thanks to God. If, as we saw in the, the last point, you've been given the good gift of a good marriage and a good spouse, you should praise your spouse, but you should praise your God as well. He's given you a good gift. He's shown you favor. And, and, you know, this was convicting for me this last week as I dwelled on this, as I considered the fact that I have been given a good marriage and a wonderful wife. I've been given so many good gifts from the God of heaven. And I give thanks for so few of them. I thought of Luke 17. Jesus happens upon him and heals 10 lepers. And out of all 10 of them, only one comes back to thank Jesus for his gift. And in Luke 17, Jesus says, we're not 10 cleansed, we're the nine. So often, I'm one of the nine. Every day I receive good things from the good God that I worship, and I give thanks for so few of them. For those of us this morning who've been given the gracious gift of a good marriage and a good spouse, may, may we be like this one here. May we give thanks and praise to our God for his gracious provision. This is wisdom for those of us who are married. But then again, there are those of us who aren't married, but desire to be married. For those who are single but desire marriage, remember these two realities. That on the one hand, a good and godly spouse will only be provided by God. But that because of this, this element of human action, that's no reason to be passive. He who finds a wife finds a good thing. He's searching. That's why he finds. And, and I point this out because I've, I've heard so much silliness among Christians before regarding marriage. So, so many times I've heard Christians say that they're, you know, they desire to be married, but they're not going to go actively searching for a spouse even though they desire it. They're just going to wait on God to provide the right person and for him to make it obvious. You've, you've probably heard this before. I don't know where this came from. We don't do it with anything else in life. You don't do that with a job. You don't do that with groceries. You don't do that with finding a place to live. I don't know why we do that with finding a, a spouse. And so if you desire marriage, don't be passive. Pray for a spouse. Prepare your life for marriage. Put yourself out there. Communicate your interests to potential mates. Make your desires known. S single men, ask women on dates. It's okay. You can do that. There's nothing wrong with that. It's a good idea. Single women, Send the obvious signals that we guys are sometimes a little too dull to figure out. In short, don't be passive. Don't fret. Don't be anxious. Don't idolize the idea of marriage. Rely on God's sovereign grace and provision, but don't be passive. And maybe some of you are hearing this and you're saying, yeah, I've, I've done this. I've longed for marriage. I've desired marriage. I've sought marriage, I've prayed for it, I've prepared for it, I've put myself out there, but I'm still single. It just never worked out. I know that can be hard. I know that can be disenchanting and disorienting and disappointing. And Proverbs 13, 12 says that hope deferred makes the heart sick. 
Some of you know what it is to feel such heartbreak because of the disappointment of deferred hope regarding marriage. I know that's disappointing. I'm sorry. But there is good news and healing balm no matter who we are or what state of life we're in right now, whether we're in a deliriously happy marriage or a disappointing marriage or a contented singleness or an unwanted singleness, there is good news and healing balm because, listen, marriage is a grand good. It's a gracious gift. But even more important than both of those truths, marriage has a glorious goal, which is far better and more important for us as Christians. Here's the reality, friends. As wonderful as marriage is, it's only a shadow. It's only an imperfect portrayal of something far more glorious and satisfying. You know, when, when we were listing some of the purposes and benefits of marriage earlier, we left out a huge one, the biggest one, which is this. Marriage displays and portrays the loving union that is between Christ and his bride, the church. Right, the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 5, 31 and 32, he, he quotes Genesis 2, saying, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And then he says this, This mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ in the church. You see, Paul is saying that the God who designed marriage and created marriage and ordained marriage and gave marriage as a gift to his creatures did so so that we would have a living parable, an imperfect yet very real picture of our loving union with our Savior and bridegroom, Jesus Christ. Jonathan Edwards picks up on this in his book, The End for Which God Created the World. Listen to what he says. He speaks to this reality. He says that the creation of the world seems to have been especially for this end. Listen to what it is. That the eternal Son of God might obtain a spouse towards whom he might fully exercise the infinite benevolence, or, or that word means the infinite goodness and loving kindness of his nature to whom he might, as it were, open and pour forth pull for all that immense fountain of condescension, love, and grace that was in his heart, and that in this way God might be glorified. Here's what all this means. Church, Christ loves you and delights in you, and, and perhaps we should be more specific here. Because here, here's the thing. Christ's love for his bride, the church, is such, his, his love is so immense and infinite and, and unboundable that his love for each part is as it is for the whole. So let's be more specific for a moment. Christian, Christ loves you and delights in you. Similar to that, that that ideal husband we saw in Proverbs 31, he, he, just, he just rejoiced in his wife and delighted in his wife and loved his wife. Well, listen, Jesus is far better than any ideal earthly husband. He delights in you and takes joy in you and treasures you and loves you. And you might go, that doesn't feel like that sometimes. How do I know that to be true? We have proof that that is true. 
Because just as finding a wife takes action on the part of a husband, so Christ, finding his bride, took action. He, he came to search for us. And not only did he come to search for us, but Ephesians 5.28 tells us that Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. You can know that Christ loves you and treasures you and delights in you because he's shown you and what he's done for you. He came and searched for you. He gave himself up for you on a cross for you so that he might have you forever and ever. How amazing is that? This, re- this reality astounded and changed and transformed the Apostle Paul when, when sharing this testimony of transformation and In Galatians 2, the apostle exalts in Jesus, calling him the Son of God who loves me and gave himself for me. Do you realize, Christian, you can say the exact same thing. Jesus, the Son of God, loves you. Yes, you particularly, individually. He loves you and gave himself for you. He gave himself for you because he wanted you to be his and he wanted to be yours forever and ever. That's what marriage ultimately points us to. And so for those who in some way have experienced disappointment related to marriage in life, you can rest assured of this. While you may not have the good but imperfect and temporal gift of a good marriage, you more importantly have what marriage points to. You are perfectly loved. You have a bridegroom whose love, Edward says, is like an ocean without shore or bottom. And that is what defines you. Your identity is not found in your marital status. You are not incomplete or inferior if you are not married. You are beloved of Christ, and your identity is firmly rooted in what the sovereign of the universe says over you, and what he says over you is married, desired, beloved, delighted in. For those of us who are happily married, you can rest assured of this. And our marriages only an imperfect picture and placeholder for a far more glorious reality. The love of your earthly spouse is a mere shadow of the perfect love of Jesus Christ. Yes, we should enjoy and give thanks and praise God for the earthly gift of marriage, but we who have found a good thing in a spouse have a far greater blessing to enjoy, a far greater reality for all of eternity. We Christians who have a good thing in marriage now will enjoy the best thing forever and ever. And that's a reason why marriage is worth celebrating in this life. But it ought never overshadow this far more glorious and precious and satisfying reality. Because in marriage, we see its glorious goal to show forth the loving union of Christ and his beloved bride, the church. He who finds a wife finds a good thing. Christ counted you as such a treasure. And so he came to obtain you for his very own, and you will be forever. And so rejoice, praise him, thank him, and be glad. Let's pray. Fathers, we have heard the good news of your gospel this morning. Seal it upon our hearts. Assure us of it as we come to the table now. 
seal it through our communion with the, with the living Christ by the Holy Spirit whom you pour out on us, that we might be more assured, more confident that we are loved by him and in him and through him forever and ever. Press that reality, massage that reality more deeply into our hearts this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.